for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is June 27th, 2023. My name is, I am your host and my name is, how many times have we done that? And it's like, it's weird for me to do it every time, but my name is Aaron Blasey. I am your host. And then my co-host is David Riley. And today's episode is episode 307. I think I should probably look, but I think it's 307. Um, We got a good one today. Okay. You know, last week we talked about We've got some really good episodes coming up, and this is just the start of it. Lee Her from Iowa, and if you guys haven't heard that name before, he is uh, good friends with the working class guys, but Lee Her is a big deer killing machine. And I don't want you to think like he only kills big deer because he's in Iowa. When you when you get sit down with Brass Tacks with Lee, and we've spent time with him, you know, out from recording an episode, like we've spent time face to face and talked deer hunting and stuff like that. He's, he's got it. Like he's like, he's very smart. Um, he's a very good deer hunter. So today's episode is, uh, kind of a hot one. It, uh, it is, uh, you know, the reason why we did it in a way is because, you know, you and I did a podcast a while ago talking, uh, using trail cams in big ag country. Well, Lee texts me after we did that episode and he's like, man, I got a hot take. He's like, um, he goes, I firmly believe that that bigger antler deer and more mature deer come from big open ag country than the big woods. And I'm like, hmm, like that's that's like a hot take, you know? So we, we're talking back and forth through text. And I hit him up with like, hey, would you do a podcast on it? Because I said, I kind of believe the same thing. Lee and I we both grew up like hunting big woods and then we've recently moved to big ag and we can see the the direct correlation. So this one's a good one. I don't know what you thought about the episode, but I, I thought it was a great conversation. No, I, I really enjoyed this episode myself. Also, the part that I find very interesting is yes, there, there are some 
there are some great hot takes in this one. I mean, some stuff that even I, you know, I was like, yeah, I can, I can respect your view on that. I, and I could very well see that. But the part that's the most interesting for me is you are going to hear a lot of Lee's story talks about for years hunting, you know, the quote unquote, big woods, and then now farm, you know, big ag country. But this is all done in the same state the great state of Iowa at that. So that's that's very interesting. It's not like he didn't come from northern Minnesota then move down to the farm belt in Iowa. No, he stayed in the same state. So a lot of what he is saying, you know, that it's it, it's it holds true, you know what I mean? Cuz it's we're not, you know, these are these are, it's very comparable the two situations, you know what I mean? Cuz like I said, he's not traveling across state state border lines to be able to talk like this one part of Iowa to a different part of Iowa and uh some of those hot takes man they're 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 fun you know but I a lot of what he said is stuff that you and I also see here in Michigan to mm -hmm. a different you know caliber yeah the caliber is different but a lot of the same big ag farm country kind of movement patterns how deer are acting how deer are shifting we see the same stuff in Michigan, you know, just, just a different age class, different caliber class of animal. Yeah. And, and we go back and forth on this about, you know, why he thinks that the bigger age or, you know, the, the older, more mature and bigger antler deer come from ag and, and we kind of compare and contrast a little bit, but there's some good hot takes in this. So it's a good episode and we're talking about big farm country and, and, uh, I don't know, it's, it just kind of kicks off you know, the farm country talk, cause we're going to have another one coming up here soon with another guy that in my opinion is one of the goats and one that not a lot of people have heard from unless you've, you know, were heavy into the, Hey, I'm not even going to get into it. Yeah. Don't you know? even, don't even don't want to yeah. get into it <laughs> yeah. because that one's all on its own there, buddy. Yes. Yeah. I'm not, I'm going to keep it separated. So this one's going to be a good one with Lee her, um, Guys, I just want to remind you, go to fallpodcast.com and order some merch. Uh, we got, like I said, shirts, hoodies, hats up there. We're going to be getting some more stuff, but we need to move some merch to get some more merch in. So go to fallpodcast.com and support the podcast because that'd be awesome and greatly appreciated. Uh, let's hit let's hit some uh, codes here. So you guys are looking for some new mobile gear, anything like that, uh, any hunting gear related as far as saddles or sticks or platforms, go to uh, latitudeoutdoors.com. Use the code THEFALLPODCAST and uh, save some money at checkout. If you need new ropes, lineman's belts, anything like that, go there. Use the code THEFALLPODCAST, all one word, and uh, check those out and save some money. I do want to remind you that this week, the Latitudes, our, our digital series, Grit, is launching this week. So. Be on the lookout on YouTube, on our YouTube channel for that. And if you are a Waypoint Network listener, you can find it on there as well. But this is the week today, or not today, but this week it launches. So go check that out. Uh, Helix Broadheads is next. Go to helixbroadheads.com and uh, look for some new broadheads. If you guys are looking for, you know, maybe you want to transition from like another broadhead to, to a fixed blade or anything like that, this is a single bevel right bevel broadhead i've been shooting it for two years two seasons now shot five deer with them um i've shot three with the fj2 which is just the single bevel standard but then they come out this year with a bleeder blade version which is the fj4 
and I shot two deer with it last year. And uh, any concerns that I've heard people having, you know, with blood loss or anything like that, the feedback I've got, they answered the bell with this FJ4 because I shot two deer with it last year. And boy, oh boy, did they bleed. I really like that. And honestly, I think this FJ4 is more accurate than FJ2. And I don't know, it's just a hot take I have, I guess. But uh, have you messed around with yours at all? Because I know you've, you know, you've gotten them and I just don't know if you've shot them out in the yard or anything yet. I have. I have, and I haven't okay. even told you this yet. Oh but I have. gosh, here I've, we go. I've I've pulled one out and I've been shooting it, and I've I've told you in the other podcast before that my my broadhead target is is not the best, right? <laughs> <laughs> and first off, is there any Target for, sponsors out there? Can we yeah, get a Target yeah, we're, sponsor? We're I mean, my target's terrible too. <laughs> yeah. First arrow blows right through it, so I can't like it looked flight looked good. I I'm I was sure it hit right. No in the idea where it hit. <laughs> so I had to go through, pull it out of the ground. So now I have. Oh gosh, this this is gonna sound terrible. I have an old Glendale insert now taped to the back of this other target. So now we got <laughs> we're we're doubled up targets. But the dude, I'm telling you right now. So then I, I shot the second arrow that I can truly see, like, now that the arrow's in the target where it's at, there's no adjusting for me. It, it, it's, it's already right That's there. It's a good feeling. It's, dude, it's a great feeling. It's, and I tell you what, I am, I'm really anxious to shoot something with it. But being anxious like that, I actually don't think I will be the first person to shoot one with one. I'm... I'm going to put one on, you know, for Bailey or, or Madeline, and they'll probably get to shoot a deer with it before I do. So that will be, I'll get to see firsthand, you know what I mean, how, how they're working right out in the field. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. So if you guys want to, you know, try out a Helix Broadhead for yourself, go to helixbroadheads.com, use the code FALLHX10, and you can get single packs. If you just want one broadhead to try out, you can get a single pack right from the website. So I recommend doing that if you're really you know worried about it or just wanting to dip your toe in it do that and well, uh i i got one more thing about to say about it because I, I, I got a pack sitting here and it made me think of it before we move on from it i've shot a lot of other fixed blades over the years over the last 10 years i've tried a bunch i don't know about you but the one thing you know you've been shooting them for a while so maybe you just overlook it just become you've become so natural to it but these things are quiet when they fly oh, they yeah. don't they don't have that you know, the big, you know, the, the, some of the bigger fixed blades that say, you know, they have the cuts in the blade. Like these things are quiet for a fixed blade. Like that was, that was one of the very first things that I noticed. It was like, man, it, it didn't sound that much different than a field point going down range. Yeah, that, that, that is the truth. And it's, it's non-vented. These broadheads don't yeah, have a that's vent what I'm looking for. They're, they're more of a, like a, like a, a fighter jet. Um, uh, oh gosh design that's what they design yeah they kind of look like one honestly yeah they look like a fighter jet yeah yep yeah so that's a good point um yeah go try them out so next is exodus so if you guys trail cam season here it's here i mean people have trail cams out but you and i are going to be spending you and i are kind of religious to the july 4th time frame once july 4th hits, i feel like it's like i almost feel like there's a unwritten law where we're ha- we've put in our heads that we can't put cameras out till July 4th. But once that hits, floodgates open, we're going. We're ripping. Yep. You know, I cannot wait. So 
honestly, we've got render or uh, rivals. We have renders as well, but rivals. We're gonna both of us are gonna be putting out some rivals this year. So try out the new rival cell cam or the render uh, with the SP18 bundle at ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Um, Garmin. Uh, we've said it. We've beat this. We've beat this to death. You just got to try it out for yourself. Uh, shoot the A1, the A1i, or the A1i Pro, and uh, put that on your bow, and just build all the confidence you can because it's just going to give you that much more confidence in the moment of truth. So go to Garmin.com and check that out. Uh, Buck Bourbon, go check out uh, their ground blinds. Use the code TFP20 if you guys are looking for a new ground blind. Um, a lot of great features on these ground blinds. The door, it's a saloon style door. There's no zipper. So there's no, you know, spooking game or anything like that. You can get in quiet. It's just a clip and it's a saloon style. So it opens up. It's really big. You know, <laughs> I have a picture in my head. You know how you always try to get in ground blinds, like with your backpack on and you just get hung up and I'm like, what the hell? You know, you can get in this blind without getting hung up because the door is huge on it. I feel like, yeah. but uh, and they have a one-way mesh, so you can see out, but the deer or you know animals cannot see in if you have that mesh in there. The window system's awesome. It's a hub style. It's just a great ground blind, um, especially with you know youth season come up. You guys do a lot of youth hunting, um, but also antelope hunting is going to be coming up here soon out west. And I know a lot of guys shoot you know on water holes and everything like that. So this is a good option as well. So go to buckbourbon.com. Use the code TFP20 and uh, save some money on a ground blind. The last two are certainly not the least two. Prime G from G5. Go to Prime, sorry, go to G5Prime.com. Check out a new bow or go to your local Prime dealer, shoot one, and uh, just you know try it out for yourself because I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. And the last one is uh, new strings. Um, AmericasBestBowStrings.com. Use the code THEFALL to get a new custom set of strings for your bow. So. That's all I got. Do you have anything to add before we get into this episode? Man, you know, not only did we share some some discount codes and a little bit of, you know, descriptions on some of our partners' products, but I would, you know, if I was sitting here telling anyone that's kind of thinking about a bowstring or the bow or the broadheads or a blind or the cameras or whatever it may be, don't wait, guys, because one, like if it becomes anything to do with the archery stuff, these archery shops are only going to get busier by the week as we get closer to fall. Have that stuff dialed in. You know, if you want a new ground blind, have that have that blind brushed in, you know, a month or two in advance. Yes. That's what I'll be doing for youth season. Like my blinds will go out in August at some time. Like don't wait on this stuff. The more you wait, the more hassle, the more pinch you're going to put yourself into. Make sure your equipment is dialed, working, and everything, you know, Crossing the T's, dotting the I's with your equipment. Don't wait around to go use these codes. Use them right now, man. Go get your stuff. Couldn't, couldn't agree more on that. The ground blind thing was a great, great thought because where we come from Michigan, you can't just put a ground blind out and not brush it in the day before season with a bow and just be hunky-dory. You got to get that thing out, get it brushed in. The deer got to get used to it. That's in my experience. So get them out there. Same thing with cameras. It's camera season. Yeah. It is. Antlers are growing right now. It's the velvet rut. So let's get out there and get those pictures. So yeah, with that being said, let's get over this interview with Lee and uh, please go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, leave a written review, do the same thing on Spotify because uh, that helps us in the rankings and it's always greatly appreciated. So thank you guys very much. And here's this interview with Lee. What's going on, everybody? Today, 
The podcast is with the cult leader himself, Mr. Lee Her. Mm. Now, uh, if uh, if you guys, you know, you might be like, oh, he's talking about a cult. I, 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 you know, if you don't listen to Working Class Bowhunter, you probably don't know the name Lee Her, um, and the cult that he leads. So, Lee, thank you for coming on the show today. But also, kind of give us like a, a expedited version of the cult that you lead and why you do. Mm. Uh, and, and kind of give us that whole rundown. <laughs> well, first of all, it's not a cult. <laughs> that's a, that stems back clear to my first, uh, first ever working class bow hunter episode. Uh, we talked about where I grew up and it's like a long story short, it's a, uh, German community that moved over here from Germany because of like some, uh, religious prosecution over there. Anyways, settled in Iowa. Um, and it's now it's a corporation that owns a bunch of ground and you have to either live there or have heritage to the people who came over initially to be able to hunt it, um, and use the land. And, and I do. So all the boys over there at WCB call me a, call it a cult and call me the cult leader, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, that is funny. You know, the first time I heard that podcast, when it came on, I'm like, I just couldn't stop laughing. Now Kurt just beats it into the ground. Just Lee's the cult leader. He he leads this big group of people and and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't get enough of it. I love it. He did it into the ground, <laughs> I think, is an understatement. His wife Sam started calling me the cult leader and doing all that stuff too. So, <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, I, I'm oh. I'm the same though. You could almost uh, you could forget what his name is, but you knew you you will forever know him as the cult leader. That is like that's just the way it's gonna be. And I started yeah. talking, you know, once it started sticking more. I, I talked to the Lord, Austin Chandler, you know, and he was like, dude, you just got to accept it. He said, I hated the Lord initially. He's like, you just got to run, let it go. And just, it is what it is at this point. It's what you're branded as now. I love it. I love it. And you know, so I, Eric was texting me today and Eric Common from working class. And since we're on the subject, I'll just kind of get into this, but he's like, you got to ask Lee, who his favorite cult leader is and, or what was it? The favorite cult leader. So we, but he's like, you got to ask him who his favorite, um, let's see, let me get it. Uh, you better ask Lee who his favorite cult member and his favorite WCB host is on the podcast. Ooh. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Ooh. You got to call, you got, you got to, this could, this could make or break your relationship with working class. So you better say the right thing. <laughs> Uh, so the cult member, I'm not even going to answer that one (laughs) myself. I think would be that, that would be the correct answer. Um, and as far as my favorite, uh, host on WCB, that's a tough one because they all have their individual roles, you know, like Doug, he's just there to throw in the one-liners, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say much, but when he does, it's really funny. Um, you know, I, I probably spend more time with Kurt, you know, but I've got a pretty, pretty lax job, not lax, but I can kind of make my own schedule. So like if Kurt needs, you know, help on the farm or whatnot, um, I, I can go help him for an afternoon and just take a half day of vacation or whatever. Um, so it's pretty flexible from that standpoint, but, uh, ah, they all three play a big role. I didn't really say anything about Eric there cause he's the one that asked the question. So I'm just leaving him out on purpose. <laughs> I feel like Eric was just a shoe in, you know, to the podcast. It was just like, Hey, we just need one more guy. Let's shoe Eric in there. <laughs> nah, I, Eric's good stuff, man. I'm, I'm kidding. All those guys are good, good dudes. Yeah. I, I, I tell you what, when I got to be around all you guys, 
at ATA this year, you could truly see how all of you guys interact very well together. Like it, it's a well-oiled machine over there at the working class bow hunter. No doubt. It definitely is. Those guys, they've, they've done a lot for me in the podcast and everything. And I, you know, I got a lot, lot to owe to those guys and, and, uh, they're one of the OGs in the game. I've said it, you know, before, and I'll keep saying it because they're one of the, the, uh, the pavers in the, in the pathway of the podcast game for hunters anyway. So I, I owe a lot to them. So we weren't, we, we won't, uh, make their heads any bigger. <laughs> so we're going to get off that subject right now. Um, Today, you know, so like everybody said, or like I said, we have Lee Hur on today. Lee, you're from Iowa. Um, got to know you pretty good just over the last, actually over the last year, basically, and spent some time with the ATA and hung out and got to know you. And, um, you know, you and I text a little bit and David and I just come up with a podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about big ag country and, and running cameras and, and big ag and and what we mean by that is just wide open, you know, with little wood lots and, and stuff like that. And I think it was like the day after it went live, you text me. It's like, man, I got a hot take. Um, you know, I, you, you said you grew up in big timber, but then you moved to, to a big ag section and in your opinion, you know, you feel like there's a lot more mature bucks and bigger size bucks, um, uh, because they're harder to kill in, in, in big ag country. When you said that, Dude, it resonated with me. Like I, I agreed with it, and I immediately said, "Would you do a podcast on it?" And let's leave it at that. And because I don't know your other reasons, so you're like, "Yeah, let's do it." So that's what today's podcast is going to be about. But I, before we get into there, you know, anybody that doesn't know you, I, I do want to give you, you know, have you give a little background of who you are. You got a hell of a track record. You've killed some giant deer. You know what the heck you're doing. You're a really good hunter. Um, but I just kind of want to put validation to that for everybody listening because you're not just some joe schmo off the off the off the street so kind of give us that elevator pitch who you are and and you know where you started hunting and and how you got to where you are today well, i appreciate it i wouldn't uh wouldn't call myself a a killer per any means i'm no austin chandler or anything like that but um you know i, I was born in 1994 grew up in east central iowa um hunting big timber i mean the the corporation that is known as the colt i suppose um <laughs> it's like eleven thousand acres of contiguous timber um twenty six thousand acres total and eleven thousand of that's timber so you know the big blocks of ground i grew up hunting were minimum of like four to five hundred acres in one chunk you know split by roads and all that kind of stuff um so growing up you know i, I killed a lot of deer there up until the last couple of years um, when I moved this way, I moved away like five years ago. Um, but I, you know, I grew up hunting big timber, learning terrain features and it's, you just have to hunt it way different, you know? Um, and I was just like any other, you know, any other of the killers, you know, you got to climb the ladder. I started out by, oh, uh, like one of my first bucks was actually, um, a shotgun deer in Iowa with the pushes, you know, I still do that every year. I go back with my family and um, back in Amanda and we, we shotgun hunt for the five days of first season shotgun. Um, and a lot of my deer have come off, off of Amanda during shotgun season. Um, but my first deer was my biggest deer for a long time. But then after that, once I got into bow hunting at like 13, um, excuse me, I, I've, you know, I started off killing 135, 45 inch three-year-olds and gradually I've just, you know, gotten more picky and more picky throughout the years. Um, I've, I've had a pretty good last year was the worst season I've ever had in my life, but the previous four seasons leading up to that were, uh, you know, 
hard to beat really per se. Um, each year leading into the next, I killed my progressively bigger buck. Um, 160, then 168, then um, then in the year I killed a junk brow, my big deer, I killed my biggest bow buck, which was 173, a typical 10, and then I killed junk brow, which was 204. So, and then last year was a, we got hit with EHD pretty bad. Um, and I didn't hunt back into man as much because my son was one and I wanted to be around more. Um, and quite frankly, it was, it was one of those, you always learn type of things. I, uh, I overhunted the one good deer I had on camera and pretty much made him go nocturnal for the most part. And I, that was pretty much my fault, but you know, he was the only really good deer I had to chase. And I just was, I don't know, dumb, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I got a question for you, Lee, you know, back where you kind of cut your teeth growing up hunting, when you talk about big woods. How much topography are you talking inside that, you know, kind of those, those real big woodlot, those woodlots, is it pretty flat, you know, is it rolling hills or is there pretty good, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, bottoms and tops and what, what did that look like? So really a, a big array of everything, um, where I, where I grew up hunting, there's river bottoms where there's no topography except for, um, ditches and that kind of stuff. Um, there's some timbers that I would say are more rolling type timbers. Um, and there was some of the timbers that were, I mean, they were, we called them mountains, but they're not, you know, there was, there was really a good mix of everything where I grew up hunting. Um, the timbers that I mainly focused on were, were the, maybe the steeper end of the rolling type timbers, uh, or yeah, the steeper end of the rolling, not quite the really hilly, crazy stuff, straight up and down stuff, but um that's just the timbers that i i learned to hunt it was kind of where my dad hunted when he was growing up so i kind of just stepped into where he would always hunt um and it was i think those timbers honestly were easier for me to kill in because there was it was easier to pick out where the deer were going to go i think because you know a deer's more or less going to take the path of least resistance in my mind um you know if he's got a i hunted a lot of like i call them come arounds you know, where there's a big ditch that runs up and right around the top edge of it that I hunted a lot of that type of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of fields, that kind of stuff too, growing up, but it really helped me learn how to, you know, a read a topographical map and, uh, um, you know, more or less how to read terrain more than just your average person, I would say, you know, but when I oh, moved over yeah. here, that all went out the window. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I, I tell you what though, like, you know, where you got to cut your teeth, not only such a large, vast amount of land, but then you have all that topography mixed into it. You know, back then you probably just, you know, thought you were hunting where now you can look back at it and you're like, man, you were really learning how to hunt each part of that differently. And then you probably also learned like what you liked the most, like, like you talked about, like, you know, at the, those top of those ditches where those deer were crossing, like you really learned what you found success at. And I bet you in the beginning of it, a lot of it, like you said, like you're following your dad around where you were probably just following him around where he found most success over the years also. Yeah. And that's one thing. My dad, he, so I, I'm German. I call my Opa is grandpa. I call him Opa. Okay. Um, he passed away two years ago. Um, and he is actually why I think I had so much success in the 2021 season because he passed away in 2021. And I think he, he was looking out for me, but he wasn't a bow hunter. So my dad had to learn everything on his own. So about the time that I started bow hunting, my dad kind of 
he kind of more or less phased out of bow hunting for the most part. He's a, he's a busy guy. He's a fire chief and does you name it. He's part of it. Um, so when I started bow hunting, he kind of started phasing out of it more or less. And he more or less, he told me, you know, I had to learn it on my own and it made me better, I think. So, you know, I'll give you a few pointers, but just try to go figure it out. with that with that mentality and everything i think that's what like how a lot of you know young hunters and and guys and gals grow up is like kind of throw you into the fire kind of thing and and figure it out basically so with that big timber setting and everything and I'm, i'm just trying to trying to see some parallels here because it sounds like you and i grew up a lot of the a lot of the same way as far as how we hunted and everything um you know, the big timber I had to hunt was only 220 acres. That's it. You know, I mean, I could have went and hunted public, but it public wasn't really a thing when we were growing up. I mean, it was there, but it was never really talked about like it is now. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're hunting that big, big terrain, stuff like that, and, and you kind of learn it on your own and you talk about these come arounds and these ditches and everything, like when did things really start clicking for you? Like, you know, man, I could, or did it ever click? Because I can tell you this, like the, it was really consistently hard. It was hard to, to consistently kill good deer on big timber stuff. It it was really difficult. Now, David knows he's, he's seen my farm and everything. There's 11 other guys that hunt it. So it, it's essentially public, you know, uh, in a lot of sense. And, and it's, you got pressure and then you, you know, and all the good spots are, are you, you, sometimes you almost had to race somebody out there to get there. But, you know, uh, it is what it is. And it, I just found it really hard to consistently do it. And I still kind of find it hard to consistently do it. So was that the same way with you? Is it, was it hard to consistently get on deer, especially with something that big? You know, you talk about 11,000 acres. That's, that's a lot of land, but could be a lot of people hunting it. So did you see that or have that issue? So where I grew up hunting, there is 160 other people that hunt there. So it's not like it was just wow. me on 11,000 acres, you know. Um, and along with that, there was also the, um, you know, anybody who lives there can ride their four wheeler, walk their dog. So I basically, when people ask me about it, I call it glorified public ground is what I, (laughs) that's how I reference it. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. so when I was growing up, I I wouldn't know, I wouldn't say, I do think it began to click, but it was a a lot. I mean, a lot of years I wasn't, it was when I started hunting specific deer, that's when it really kind of clicked. Um, like those come arounds and stuff, those, the deer that I always hunted or, you know, the, the mature deer would always use them, but I wasn't like methodical on when I hunted them and that kind of stuff. But in 2020, I killed, um, oh, I think one of your biggest buck to date, you just had a guy who was, I don't remember where he was from, but he's killed two bucks in Iowa. You did an episode. It was like two or three ago. He killed on November, the morning of November 3rd. 2020. Yep. That's the same day I killed my 168 incher. That when it was leading yeah. Into Ryan hunt. Glitzky. That yep. was. Um, yep. yep. So that deer, I think, is the one where it clicked for me, um, because I was more focusing on him versus just any mature deer that came into the area. And that was after I moved over okay. here. And and that's one thing too. I think moving to big open ag ground has made the big timber ground click better for me. Um, because it's funny, I talked, you know, when I moved over here, all my buddies, they hunt big ag, you know, for the most part or, or a mix of it. 
and all of them, a couple of them got permission on bigger chunks of timber. And they're like, I can't hunt this to save my life. And I said, that's funny. Cause I can't hunt this big ag to save my life because <laughs> you know, it's what you, they grew up hunting big ag so they can hunt big ag. And, you know, I'm used to hunting a 400 acre block of timber, not a tree line coming off of a 20 acre patch of timber, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah you, and that's. Go ahead, go ahead David. bud. Oh, I was, I was, Lee said something right there that I would actually like to ask both of you. Cause this is such a great thing. He just said, when you, you made the comment about things started to click when you started hunting a specific buck, right? And I am a big believer in this. I want to get your guys' take. And we'll start with Lee first. Do you guys believe that those years that you commit yourself to hunting one specific buck, that you are learning more in those years compared to the years where you're just kind of hunting a specific, say, caliber or age range of buck? Uh, I would say yes, 100% you learn more, but again, I have a caveat there. Every single buck is different. I don't think there's hardly a buck that you're going to hunt that is, I mean, there will be similarities nonetheless, um, but I think no matter what, it, it's one of those things you, you, you always will be learning. You know, you're never going to know it all, and each buck is completely different than the next. You know, you can, and I think that's why, you know, it gets quote unquote easier, even though it's still not easy at all, but it gets easier as you go down the line. And, you know, you, especially our hunting specific bucks, the more specific bucks you can hunt and tendencies you can see, I mean, you can start to see similarities between bucks along the way. Yeah. I, I like that. And it, that's, what's so awesome about when you start, you know, each year, you know, if you're, you're having success killing the one buck you're after and then the next year, like, when you start realizing, just like you said, that each one has their own personality where it's like, okay, some may be stronger in this area, but some may be a little weaker in this area. This He's got a weak spot in his game here, but this guy doesn't. Like, I, 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 like, I kind of geek out on that stuff, you know, especially when you really start to figure out that each one of these is an individual and they all are completely different. What do you, what do you think about it, AB? I think definitely it, it, it it uh you know i think it i i agree with lee like it 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 i don't know what the word is i'm trying to say here it makes you yes it's it's uh you learn more i think very much so but it's very situational dependent as well as like you know on my family farm here in michigan i have yet to be able to in all the years follow a deer year after year for a couple different reasons a they all get shot or b if they do make it through, they never do the same thing two years in a row. There and and what I mean, and I'm not saying a carbon copy of like he did the same thing this year as he did last year. I'm saying there there's never even a tendency that like okay he did this last year and he's doing it again this year, but he doesn't do these things. They they're they're totally you know different animals from year to year. I in my in what I see here in Michigan now. I've been all over the country hunting and I will say that, you know, when you get into, you know, less pressure deer, you start seeing deer do same tendencies year after year. Mm -hmm. Now I want to throw a, another thing in there is that, you know, in big ag, I can pick out a buck and I can chase him for a couple years. And I think that's going to play into our, you know, into our, in our timeline today 
because, you know, we're in my big ag. There's not a lot of other people hunting in the big ag that I hunt in. So there's, I mean, just about every year, I know that I'm going to pick up a deer for maybe three years in a row. You know, I, I, it's very possible. And, um, I think it's, it's much easier to, to pick up on those tendencies and they have the same tendencies, even here in Michigan, when you're in big ag. And, uh, I think there's two different learning curves there as well. There's very much uh, a learning curve. And, you know, what I mean by learning curve is, is a learning to a deer in big ag into a deer, uh, and big timber. You know what I mean? Like there's, they're, they're, they're two different beasts in my opinion. That's, that's what I think. Lee, do you see the same thing? hundred percent. I think the amount they travel this and that all and the other in big ag versus big timber are completely different. Like where I grew up, you know, there's like, like I said, there's 11,000 acres of timber or 10 or whatever it is. And there's like 400, five acre chunks everywhere, but they're separated by a road or a field. And a lot of times the deer stay in that section of timber. They don't leave that section of timber. Whereas Junkbrow, he ran like an eight mile circle. Wow. He was a six and a half year old, 200 incher. And he ran like an eight mile circle, depending on what time of year. And he would do it. And this all, all came together after I killed him. But um, one of my buddies had pictures summer through about the rut over the northwest portion of his range. And then for from about October 23rd till November 1st, roughly, he would go to this other place um, that would be three miles from my buddy's place. And then after about November 1st, he would come back to my buddy's for about two weeks. And then after that two weeks, he moved into where I ended up killing him for the late season. And as far as we know, he did that for three years in a row, almost to a T on the, like the guy that had him in the pre-rut October 20th to November, he would show up within about 12 hours. The three years he had pictures of him, he, his first pictures every year were on the same camera and they were within about 12 hours every year for the three years. Yeah, that's why you, you said he was he six and a half, Lee. Yeah, he was six and a half. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, when he kind of hit that, you know, quote unquote, what a lot of us call it right on that four and a half, that maturity age for those last three years, he was doing things on such a historical pattern. Like it wasn't even funny. They, yeah. Like that is so interesting because, you know, I was just talking to a guy that I almost was starting starting to think nowadays that that historical information stuff matters the most when they get that four and a half or older, that's when you see that, you know, those, that historical data really playing the biggest parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's awesome. And it's, do you, do you see that like with other deer as well, Lee, like when they get to that age, cause you're in a, you're in a state where you can, you can see those older age class, you know, four or five, six year olds pretty regularly. So do you see that with other deer with that historical pattern is that they're getting a little more killable? Now we do know, we just got done saying every deer is different. So I, you know, taking that in consideration, but do you see that on a normal, you know, basis of a deer when they get to a certain age like that, that they are pretty habitual? Yeah, I think, uh, I would say, for me, 
four, five, and six year olds are at the, that's the hardest point for them to kill. And that's, you know, that, that's not just my observations. That's from what I've heard from other people and all that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, to me, it's like, you look at the, the old saying, the old bull and the young bull, I'm going to run around and get one of these cows where the old bull just screw them all. Yeah. Runs down and (laughs) does them all. You know, I think as they get older, they just get more lax and end up, I, I more or less killing themselves as dumb as that sounds, but no, it does. You know, I, I look at it as too, is like when you're, when you're 25 as a human, you're still not that mature in a lot of sense. And then when you get to 35, that's on a kind of a bigger scale, but it's like, man, maybe I don't need those bells and whistles on that vehicle. Or maybe I don't need like, you know what I mean? You kind of get older and more mature and it's like, I've been around this. I don't need that. Like, I know it's going to, I know it's a weird kind of analogy, but it's very much like when a deer gets to five, six years old, he knows that that doe is going to come into heat and he's going to be the first one to get her more likely. You know, it's just his body tells him. So I totally get that. And I think it makes a huge difference too, um, like other mature buck pressure. So like where I killed junk brow, um, I killed junk brow and my bow buck on the same 20 acre property and the neighbor killed, um, 173 inch eight with some junk. All three of those were my bow buck was five and a half. His bow buck was five and a half and junk brow was six and a half. And all three of those came off the same. I mean, they were, they were living on the neighbors and fed through us to go to the big ag. It's a big pitch point between the 48, the 20 and I have can hunt and the 20 he can hunt. Um, and there was another buck out there. I just called the old man 10. And I think he was like seven um, last two years ago. And I think he was eight last year, like a hundred and high fifties, eight, 10 pointer. Um, and with, and he was daylight really frequently the year I killed junk brow all the time as a seven year old. And I think a lot of that was is because he knew there was other mature buck pressure in there where once those three mature bucks got taken out of there, Last year as eight and a half, he start he daylighted a lot later into the rut than he normally would or the pre-rut that he normally did the first two years that I could hunt it. And, you know, nothing else moved in that was mature. So I think he was just like going about his merry way, didn't have to daylight, could take his time, go wherever, because there was no other like mature buck, mature buck pressure. So I think that plays a huge role, especially in the big ag ground, you know, in the big timber, there's, it's different, but I think the big ag, like I, like I'm hunting now, I think that plays a huge role into it. How many mature bucks live in the certain wood block or whatever. I think that plays a big role in daylight activity and how the bucks act in their demeanor too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that, that, that's super curious to hear that, you know, because when you, when you talk about the story of, of Junk Bro and how he was, you guys pretty much put a pattern to him over the years of kind of like 
these three to four to five day windows where he'd be at each time of the year, you know, it'd be really easy to go, well, in the rut, it's because of does. But he was making a circuit throughout the entire fall, you know, and I'm sure there's a, a lot of different like circumstances that played into it. Could be human pressure, could be, you know, does, could be food sources. But to hear that, you know, maybe it's one of the big probabilities is because other mature buck pressure in those, you know, like one buck moves in and he's more dominant. And like you said, we all deal with this here in open kind of like bigger uh, ag land that, you know, if they get kicked out of woodlot A, it's going to, they're on to the next square mile to get to the next piece of cover, you know? So next thing you know, like if you're not in that square mile, you're, you're completely out of the game, you know? But would you say that that the mature buck pressure from other bucks, do you think that would maybe be one of the top uh, reasons why say junk brow was running such a big circuit throughout the entire fall like that? Uh, I'm not really sure. So the one thing that I did notice about him, which this is one of those mysteries to me is, but you hear people talk about it all the time is like the really big bucks are not dominant. Um, he was like, there was hardly a scratch on his hide. He has one small chip on a tine. Other than that, there's no chips, no nicks, no nothing. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of those that I just don't know. I wish I, I wish I did, you know? Um, but I think it would probably play a role because so when I hunted him, I was anticipating he would show up because I didn't find out all this information until after I killed him when he was where every year. Um, other than I knew my buddy that was three and a half miles away, had pictures of him. Um, but the rut thing I didn't know because um, I found a shed there. So that put kind of the wintertime puzzle piece together because my buddy never had him much in the winter. So that put that puzzle piece together and he would always say that he disappeared during that time frame. So where I killed him is one of the most deer dense areas in, in the more or less the County, to be honest with you. Um, because it's, it's one of the big, there's not very many big patches of timber, but it's one of them. So I thought he was going to come in during the rut because there was a lot, there's a high density of does. Um, so, you know, so why he went to that guy's to the Northeast of me, I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> get yeah. to go through backyards and public ground and, everything to get there and you know why go there for just you know four five eight days you know it just that's one of those things if if we could figure that kind of stuff out we'd kill every year <laughs> yeah isn't isn't yeah. that the truth you know because it what, what's so interesting about like a buck that's making a loop like that it's like he's not just wandering all those years he knows that like the back of his hand that that is right. just wild to think about well, and I, I kind of have a hot take on that. So I'm going to go back a little bit on, on the, the mature buck pressure, the, you know, the older age class deer pressure, whatever that might be. Now, what I see, you know, on my big ag is, is, uh, there will be a, whatever you want to call it. Let's just say shooter buck, whatever that might be. Um, three-year-old, let's just call it a three-year-old here in Michigan mature like the guy the dominant deer there's going to be one in every section they're going to disperse and they're going to call that section their 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 main hub okay um there what i see is that they will they will roam other hubs you know other sections but they're going to come back 
Um, I see it year in and year out. Now, for instance, I shot a pretty good deer in 21. Uh, in 22, I had, I, I, I couldn't not, not see the deer. Like I saw him all the time and he roamed, you know, this section, I seen him do just about the same thing almost every day, just about. And, uh, coming to 21, he summered there, come into the fall. He was there. And then October 8th, gone. Okay. He, he was out of that section. I'm like, what the heck? You know? So I didn't catch him again until November 2nd, 1st, sorry, November 1st. And he was back in the section. And I have like seven cameras running in that section. I figured with a big ag, there's only so many places you can hide. I figured I would at least get a good, you know, a good, you know, good shot of him or something like that. But what I didn't realize was another deer moved in. Okay. And I think that deer moved the deer I shot out. And until that deer moved out, then he came back in. But what brought him back in was a doe. Mm -hmm. And he brought that doe in and he was with her for two days. And I killed him on the second day in that section. I see that year in and year out. I, I will have, let's call it four mature shooter bucks in the same section running together in the summer, like they do with the bachelor group. And then at a certain time frame, they disperse. It's like they go to their sections, they go, you know, and that's what they call home. Okay. And then you get these three, four day windows that one of those other deer will come back in for a hot second. And then you got to get on him then like that is, that is what I try to capitalize on, um, with the historical scrapes and the historical data, but that is my kind of take on this like big ag, small timber type stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's really, it is easier in my opinion to kill deer, but it is harder to get on deer. Would you agree with that Lee? So I've been hunting the big ag for five years basically. And I by no means would say that I have a hundred percent, even close to 50% an idea of what I'm doing. I'm still learning it really a lot, but I would say, yes, I would, I would agree with that. I think they are easier to kill once you get on them, but getting on them is the hardest part. That that's what I meant. I, I think I was, I should have probably rephrased that because it is hard to get on them because you could see them four days in a row, mm -hmm. but getting them close enough is the hard part and getting them an arrow. In yeah. Them. So that's what I was kind of meaning. Like, you know, I've got a pretty good track record going for the last five years, six years in big ag, but my big timber stuff is suffering. You know what I mean? But I will say I'm not leaving the big ag because I have better deer and bigger deer to hunt in the big ag than I do in the big timber. That is completely compared, like apparent, and it's only 10 minutes away from each other. Like it's, I mean, David knows I, I show him pictures all the time and it's, it's night and day different. Um, and then, so Lee, when you text me that I'm like, we got to talk because for you to see it on the scale in Iowa and see like the same things in a different state, that's really intriguing to me because I've said this to David before. I think hunting ag is the redheaded stepchild of, of the, the content game, because it's, if it doesn't say public then you're just kind of a, just a mediocre hunter and don't really don't know what you're doing. In my opinion, I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'd tell you something, Aaron, when you were talking about how, you know, 
you've been on a, just a spree there in, in big ag country compared to, you know, the big woods country. There's, there's a part of big ag country that, you know, anyone can go out there and get lucky on a day. Right. But in my opinion, when you're, when you're hunting big ag land, small wood lots, like you almost have to be on the deer four to five days a week, because if you're not staying on the deer, they can be two square miles away. And you think you're going out hunting where you think a big deer is in 48 hours ago, he left your woodlot and he's, he's three miles down the road now. Like, so to be consistently killing big deer in big ag land, yes, like I said, you can get lucky. You really better be trying to put eyes on them, whether it's a trail camera from a tree or from the road, you got to be putting eyes on them three, four, five days a week. Because before you know it, they will slip out through the night and they will be long gone. And that's, I see that a lot, especially coming up here in these next couple months. Like you said, someone, one of you two have said earlier, all summer long, you'll see all of them together. And that's one thing too, is like for someone watching, say if they, they have, you know, permission in, in big farm ground and they're not seeing any bucks in the summer, but they're seeing bucks four miles away. Hey, guess what, boys? You're still in the game come hunting season because when that dispersal happens, you're probably going to get one, maybe two of those bucks over there. But boy, you have to stay, you got to stay on their ass all summer and all fall because they will. They will give you the slip and be gone for miles away. Yeah, you definitely do it. And I, I have a direct like instance of what you just said, David. So this, and I forgot all about this. So this was in 2020. I'm hunting with my buddy Keegan. He was, he was filming me in big ag. Okay. I'm hunting this particular deer. Like he's number one on the list, but I got a couple more that if they come by, you know, but I'm, I'm trying to hunt this number one deer. So a buddy of mine, he wasn't hunting that evening. And I text him. I'm like, he texts me and we we're going back and forth. He's like, I'm close to where you're hunting. I said, drive around the section, you know, make a loop. Cause you can see a long way. All of a sudden the phone starts ringing and I answer it. He goes, dude, he's right here. He was 1.8 miles away from me. He was almost two miles away from me. When I thought I had him where I was sitting, I was almost two miles off. You know what I mean? So it's like, what am I doing here? We got out of the tree. You know what I mean? Because I was in here for that deer. And I'm in a, I'm in a section of timber that's only four acres. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like that. But just as much as that can happen, my deer last year, my first deer last year, never seen the deer before in my life shows up one morning and I kill him that night. Yep. Like, you know, it's just, he was, he was doing what that deer that I, you know, was trying to kill did. He was two miles away. Probably. I have no idea where that deer came from, but he was just doing a loop, you know? Yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. And you would think where both of you guys cut your teeth hunting, you know, Aaron up there in Northern Michigan and Lee, where he grew up in Iowa. And you look at that and you can look at where you are at now let's just take that same number Aaron just threw out 1.7 miles when you're in just you know continuous cover of 1.7 miles that deer don't have to go very fast he can take his time and do what he needs to do if you want to come cover 1.7 miles where I'm at I'm guessing where each of you guys are at now guess what they're hauling ass across yeah they gotta run (laughs) yeah so and we've we've all been on those you know those those back roads and a deer just crossed the road in front of you. And then he starts paralleling, 
with your truck and it's like, dude, there's a half mile, there's three quarters of a mile and it's like, it hasn't even been a minute and they've already covered that where it's like, I'm telling you, they, they will be to the next square mile in a blink of an eye in this open country easily. Yep. Kind of like with yours, Aaron, there where you said you had that, oh, that buck, that first buck you killed last year or whatever. That is the one nice thing that I like about this open ag ground is, you know, where I grew up hunting and I, I still hunt there quite a bit. I don't have surprise bucks very often, to be honest with you. Uh, there's hardly a time that I'm sitting in a tree stand and a buck comes by that I don't know him, you know, where I think yep. now this big ag. Um, and even like where I'm hunting here in big ag, a couple of my properties, but up to bigger timber, you know, a hundred acres, but it, that's big, big, you know, most of them are 15 to 20 acres. Um, around that hundred acre type place, I don't have a lot of surprise bucks, but a couple of my properties that are out kind of more or less in the middle of nowhere, you know, a, one's a 12 acre piece that I can hunt, you know, well, the timber's 12 acres, it's like a hundred acre farm, but mostly ag. Um, I got a couple of pieces like that and I get surprise bucks that I have for two days every year, you know, and I think that's one of the fun things about hunting at big ag ground too, is like I said, I get, I get more surprise bucks, you know, and I think that's, that's one of those things every year I like putting out cameras too much. So I'll never actually do it. But every year I say, I'm not going to put cameras out this year. Cause I miss not knowing the bucks, you know, but oh, yeah. I'll never not actually put cameras out cause I enjoy it too much, but. I can 100% agree with that, Lee, because, you know, our big timber stuff, there's 11 guys that hunt it and we run a lot of cameras in there. And there's, I, there's a lot of sits that I'll go into that property, the big timber stuff that's like, there's about four bucks that I'm, that I'm looking for, you know, and, and it's really, there's really no surprises unless it might be a spike that you're really not just, you know, looking at or a fork horn or something like that. But, you know, now that I think about it, both bucks that I killed last year in big ag were surprise bucks. Now, the second one that I killed in that section, uh, I know a lot of guys that hunt that section and they've hunted it for years and they run a lot of cameras. They never once ever seen that deer. And I just got the age back on him, which was a little depressing, but he was three. <laughs> a little 140s one deer that's three, but hey, you'll, you'll get that in those big jobs. But I, I have another friend that, uh, he's like, man, I picked up a shed the year before. So it would have been last year, the year before I killed him because it looks a lot like that deer and that shed where he picked that up is, um, let's see, let's see here. One, two, I'd say almost two miles away from where, where he found it. And in the shed I have, David's seen it up. It's if it's not that deer, I'd be very very shocked. Like it's very distinct. Um, he was a good two year old too, you know. So it's just a surprise deer, which which is neat. Um, but so I want I, I I do want to transition a little bit here, Lee, and get into your your theory here and and why you think the deer get bigger and and more mature. So let's dive into that a little bit. Like your hot take of. You know, what, what is your reasoning? What are some things that you're thinking why they get bigger and more mature in big ag? So I'm going to preface this with, I'm going on to my 20th year deer hunting, five of which have been in this big ag. And I have had more 180 plus deer in the last five years in this big ag than I did in the first 15 years hunting the big timber. I think they're both are in eight, Iowa. Yeah, both in Iowa, they're an hour yep. apart. 
roughly. Yep. Um, similar ground layout as far as topography, but one has a lot more trees. Um, I think there's so many factors that go into it that you can't even get to all of them. To me, the couple big ones are pressure in the big timber, I think is a lot higher. I think they see, smell, hear people a heck of a lot more than big ag because like you said earlier, it's not fun to hunt big ag. It's hard. Um, so well, let's preface this though, too. For me, it being hard is you're not in the game that much. Right. You're not like you, you're not seeing a lot of deer most of the time. You know, it's like, it's kind of monotonous yeah. in a way you might be hunting a flat three acre piece of timber that has a ditch that runs into it. That's it. Yep. You know, it's really the mental side of it is like, I'm really going out here to hunt this piece. And like, I know there's no deer in this three acres right now. They have to show up right. kind of thing. You know, it's, it's very, very mentally draining. It could be. Um, one other thing. So I'm a, I'm a feed salesman. I do a lot of nutrition work for livestock. That's what I do for my full time. So you bait your deer? Uh, I actually, no, I do not. I, I do. I do sell a lot of deer feed, but it's mostly the high fence operation. Um, I think one of the big factors as well is so the browse and kind of stuff in the timber is really high in protein, but not so high in energy like your corn and beans. So I think big ag, there's more readily available high energy feeds, which protein in be soybeans is good but there's a lot of energy in soybeans. There's a lot of energy in corn. I think there's more readily available energy to get them through the winter and all year per bite than they're when they're eating the shrubs in the big timber. Um, which I also, this is a, this is a hot take that I have that people argue with me all the time. I think harsh winters create big antlers versus mild. Winters. Really? hundred percent. Hold on, let's hear it. Let's hear about this now. No, I I want to. I I kind of feel the same way, but I want to see what your reasoning is for. Yeah, kind of the same thing versus the big timber versus the big ag. In the winter time, when it's a mild winter, they can graze in the timber, eat the shrubs that don't have a lot of energy in them, that don't help put fat, don't help get their body condition back in the winter. So when the spring comes around, they take a lot of energy, and they're you know they're put down going through that mild winter even though it was a mild winter they don't have as much fat cover they don't have um as much energy stores while they're eating those shrubs and stuff that are more readily available in the timber on a mild winter where in a harsh winter it drives them to the corn and bean fields that are higher in energy so that to me is what i've noticed in the years that we have mild winters i feel like my next year my deer's jumps are not near what they should be. Like when the year I killed junk brow, the winter coming into the year I killed him um, was harsh, really harsh. And I had almost every deer I had. Well, junk brow put on like 30 inches. My bow buck put on 35. The neighbor um, that killed 173 inch eight, that one put on like 30 inches. Um, back in um, where I grew up, a lot of my deer there put on like 20 to 40 inches also. And then coming into this year, we had a mild mild winter going into last season, and a lot of my deer put on five inches, ten inches, stayed the same, not not a lot of growth. And I've noticed that over the over years of of being out in the timber and sheds and 
you know, I've got, I'm a big shed guy. So I, I got a lot of, a lot of bucks that I have numerous years of history with. And I've, I've seen that time and time again, when harsh winters create big antlers in my opinion. Yeah. I, I like that I, take. Yeah. I can respect that. I mean, basically, you know, to put that in a nutshell, what you believe is that like you want the, the winter to be worse for them to be able to eat the better, higher energy food, basically. And it's you know, neat when, to ask backwards. They, Most people would right, yeah, but, for that saying, why would you want no, a harsh winter I, on deer? You know, yeah. obviously I don't hey. wish, wish it on them because I think your fawns and that kind of stuff, you know, it's not good for them. But I think as far as your antler quality, it's going to be better coming out of a harsh winter. That's just my opinion. Hey, I People mean, call me I, all they I, want. I'll fight them to the death. <laughs> no, I, 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 I respect it. I mean, it kind of sounds like a seeds salesman, but I get that. No, <laughs> no, it, <laughs> no, I, I get it though. Like it's, you know, in those harsh winters, even around here, the deer are more herded up in the mild winters. They're just more dispersed everywhere. Just kind of eating this or that, where it, to you, it's very important for them to be eating the best food in the winter time. So dude, I, I get that. I'm, that's something that I will be watching from here on out. I like that take. Yep. I'm going to take it a little step farther though, too. And I'm going to say longer winters, maybe not as harsh, but longer winters would, would affect it as well because this last winter, we didn't have a very harsh winter, but we had a pretty long winter, you know, and same kind of concept. I think the longer the food is covered up, you know, possibly, and or it's going to make them want to go, you know, different food or get the high nutrition food. Um, I, I think the longer winters could be one of those effects, too. I've not looked at that. It's just kind of a hot take, I guess I'll throw out there. <laughs> and that kind of like... Like I said, that relates for me into the big ag versus the big timber. More there's more corn and beans available, easily available in big yeah. ag than there is um, big timber. Uh, so that's yeah. kind of two points: hunting pressure, nutrition. Um, I think hunting pressure also plays into the role of they just get older. They're a lot harder to kill. <laughs> you know, I think more deer get to maturity, or maturity plus even die of old age in big ag than they do in big timber because i think there's a lot less hunting pressure and the people that are hunting the big ag it's a lot harder to lock one down and get him killed i think you know yeah yeah and i also would add on you know with kind of with that same theory that i think about often too in the big ag country that yes it may be small woodlots but when all this big ag country is still standing boy that's a lot of cover out there i mean a lot of cover between the corn then hell, even in the middle of the summertime, I will watch those I will watch those bucks bed right down in those in the middle of those bean fields in those low spots and lay there all day. That and you won't even know it unless you're watching bedding down or standing up. There's a lot of cover out there when those crops are up. And I think Yeah, for sure. So for me, also another factor that I kind of think I see. I think ruts are a lot different in big ag country than they are big timber. Um, I feel like the deer are more pockety, if that makes sense. So I think okay. they're not running as crazy. You know, say say you got a 400-acre block of timber or, or you have a 400-acre ag field with Two twenty or three twenty acre patches of timbers on each far corner. In that four hundred acre block of timber, and this is just from my personal experience of what I think I've seen. 
there's does spread throughout all 400 acres. So that buck has to move throughout that whole 400 acres all day long during the rut, moving does, finding does, looking for the next one, where in the 400 acre block of ag with three 20 acre patches, more than likely he can go to that 20 acre patch and that's where the does are going to be. You know, mm-hmm. yes, it might be farther yeah. between the patches, but he gets to spend more time at that patch and doesn't have to run himself as ragged. And I think that plays yep. a role yep. into stress, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and this one's kind of like a herd health density kind of kind of deal. I think there's a lot less deer in big open ag too, so there's less social pressure. I think that plays a role into it too. Yeah, no, I mean, my big timber stuff, you can go up there any night of the week, you see 100 deer in that field at one time. Now, the the big ag stuff, if you see 10 different deer throughout the year, the, the fall, it's pretty good. Um, I do want to go back to your, your rut theory, and this is something I was going to bring up. I believe a lot of the same stuff you do on this whole rut thing. Now, when I go and sit in big ag on the rut, in the rut, I don't hardly ever see bucks, dog, and does, okay? What I see is a buck locked down with a doe in the middle of a field. 100%. Now, I take all the years that I've hunted big timber, and I see a lot of dogging. I see a lot of chasing, okay? But... When you get a buck that wants to lock a doe down, where is he going to go? He's going to go to the open. Mm-hmm. I see more bucks take a doe to the open to lock him down because he does not want, he wants to be able to see 360 degrees around to see what the hell is coming around so he can fight anything off. That's what he wants to do. The lone oak tree out in the middle of a field, the the lone barn out in the middle of a field, the little patch, a little pocket that might have four willow trees in it. That's where he's going to take her. I see more deer locked down in big ag and a lot less dogging than I see in, you know, anywhere else. Like hundred percent agree with that. I, and honestly, when I go hunt big ag in the rut, I never like, if it's hardcore blown rut, I, like I even, I think I might even said this to you, David is the year I shot that buck in 21 where um, he left the section and came back. There was three days I thought the rut was really kicking. And what I meant by that is that I just saw that buck locked down with that doe. I never saw bucks really chasing. I saw actually two bucks locked down with, with a doe for four days, but I never saw one chasing. I thought the rut literally only lasted four days that year because I didn't see anything else. Yep. You know what I mean? Hot take, love it, Lee, because I agree a hundred percent on that's that's what I see every year. David, do you see that stuff in your where you're at? <laughs> it's 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 so funny that you jumped right in that because I, I just wrote it down to circle back to it because it's, my thing was with with the uh, big ag country is not only is, do you see them out there in the wide open and you know you you can put them to bed at night and the next morning they'll still be right there sometimes. But I was gonna say what I see for during the rut wide I sometimes I think that it's not not as many bucks are getting killed in farm country like that during the rut because when they do decide to uh, breed a doe the spot that the spots that he will take her are per, sometimes untouchable because of their visual sight advantage you know whether it be that lone tree out in the field 
what I see around here a lot are ditches. You know what I mean? Like they'll lay up right on top of the ditch and you think, well, maybe I'll, I'll crawl down that ditch and get to him. No, you ain't, you're not going to do that. Like they, they find those little random pockets and they'll spend 48, 72 hours there. You know, it is, it is unreal. And it's like, you just can't, you can't touch them. You know, it makes you almost think about like, you know, some of those white tail adrenaline DVDs when they're say out in Kansas in the rut and they got that buck with that doe and they're watching for two, three, four days straight out there in the middle of nowhere, just waiting for that thing to make a move. And that is a mm-hmm. lot of what I see here. And I do a lot of driving around for my job here in Michigan. And you can pretty much, you know, if someone is calling me through every day of the season, I can tell you about when they are breeding them because it is just happening out in the middle of the wide open fields. And that's only what we get to see. You know what's all going on in, in a standing cornfield that we don't even get to see? A whole lot of that, you know? Yeah. I had a buck the year I killed junk brow. I was had the wrong wind, that kind of stuff. So I was just driving around and and saw this big nine pointer, mid sixties probably was taking a doe into this creek line. I sat there and watched him, watched him bed down and and figured out the landowner, called the landowner because it was in a pretty stockable spot. So next morning I went in and he'd only moved like 80 yards, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's growing up in big timber. I'd never seen that before, you know? So yeah, yeah, like both of you said, big ag, when they lock down, they lock down hard and they don't move. Um, I ended up stepping on a rooster that day and kind of screwed my hunt, but (laughs) which (laughs) ended up happening, but (laughs) boy, how, how interesting would this be? And I've never done this, but if you find one of those, you know, like, let's say you put a visual on, you know, a mature four and a half year old plus deer taking a doe to a random spot and visually you can see them, you know, headed there, cooped up in there. And you're like, man, that is a perfect spot. But if there'd be some way to get a camera in there and just let it soak for a couple falls, you know, like, and just see is, is, you know, like say one specific buck or multiple bucks, like, is this a spot they've all learned? Like, hey, this this is the bedroom, boys. This is where you, we're lit, we're headed home from the bar. This is where we're gonna go, you know. Or it's like, I wonder if you could almost build a historical data spot off the information just for like a, a breeding zone, basically. Part of me wonders too, and this is one of those things that you know it's almost impossible to study. But part of me wonders if it's half half ass the doe's decision where she goes. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah, the buck yep. can bump and move her too. But in the end of the end of the line, she she can get out in front of him and keep him going to where she wants to be. You know, yeah. that's one of those things that you know. Do we overthink it and only think of what the bucks think? <laughs> you know. Well, but, I, right. I who knows? I, I def. Yeah, I I Lee, I agree with that. I I have camera data that shows you know this one specific mature doe in the middle of October, she will loop through this buck bedding area and she's going to grab the most mature deer in that square count or in that square mile and pull him out of there. You know, because here's the thing, here's what, we, at least for me, when we're talking about these, these little, you know, these hidden gems of these, these breeding spots that we're seeing during the rut, these aren't small bucks going out to them. These are the biggest bucks we're seeing go out there. So it could very well be that very first doe that pops or the mer- the most mature doe, she'll come grab the big boy and pull his ass right out there. Well, that's one thing like with your, you know, Aaron, what you said about, you know, you just don't see chasing. I, I see chasing, but it's year and a half, two and a half, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. Every once in a great while, depending on, you know, coming into the pre-rut, I'll, I'll see those three and four year olds. 
you know, hardcore dogging. But I, in the last five years, I can count on like two fingers the number of time I've seen a mature big deer hardcore running a doe. Yeah. And I also think too, you know, what do you see the most of, <clears throat> excuse me, during the rut, you know, those bigger deer, you see them skirting a, a, a fence line or getting from one woodlot to the next woodlot. I think they're, I, I think they're constantly moving to try to pick up another doe or pick up a doe that, and when they get her, you know, in a, in a, in a pocket or, or something, they're going to try to hold her, hold her there. You know what I mean? And <clears throat> Lee, I agree with you. You know, I think the doe has a lot to say with it because I think a doe's body, when she is starting to feel funny and, you know, you know, her body's changing a little bit and she's, you know, it's telling her that she needs to breed here soon. I think a lot of like, if you watch a doe, I think a lot of it is like they just in that time frame before she'll submit to him, they just don't want to be touched. They just don't want to be. So I think what takes them out in the open in those, those little open areas is they can see as well and they can kind of manipulate deer or other bucks that are trying to get around and, and try to, you know, try to get some kind of thing. I, th I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I do have a question, Lee, like when you're hunting, what's the smallest piece that you hunt in big ag? Like what is the smallest timber section? So actually going from last year to this year, I don't know if you listen, I did an, a podcast with Kurt on the, uh, the working class on Deercast series talking about gaining permission. Um, and that's one thing I kind of changed up what I'm targeting for trying to get permission properties. Um, up until this year, 12 acres is the smallest timber block that I've hunted, but I sent out those letters this year and they were to literally anything that had a tree on it pretty much. Um, mm -hmm. and they, I haven't, I've gotten two properties off of them, both the same guy owns. And the one is about a, oh, acre and a quarter to two and a half, somewhere in there between him and the neighbor, right on the fence line. Um, and it's, a and his other, the other property that the guy gave me permission on is like 26 acres of timber. And the 26 is like one of the bigger chunks in about a two mile square. And this two base, we'll just call it two acres, um, is connected by a creek from there to that. And I, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what hunting it's like and all that, you know, it's going to be new for me because two is a lot smaller than 12. It doesn't, I mean, it's only 10 acres, but when you're talking about bumping a deer out or getting in there, you know, two acres of timber isn't much, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess where I was going at with it is how is your approach on that 12 acres? Do you ever hunt it in the morning? Cause it, how's your access like stuff like that? So I do. Um, I have to walk in a long ways in the morning across the cattle pasture. I got permission from a neighbor. Um, and it takes me a long way to get in there. I mean, it takes me about a three quarters of a mile walk from the person's house across the cattle pasture to get in there. Um, and it's kind of the same thing. I'm only going to do that when the time's right, when I've got a certain deer, you know, where I've got pictures of them in the morning and a lot of my, and the crazy thing is I have a lot more morning daylight activity in the open ag than I do nighttime, honestly. Um, okay. So this property, like I hunted a deer 
my first year out here five years ago, I called him 2D. His left G2 was like, it went up like two inches and then got injured. So it turned down and I had him daylight in the morning all the time and snuck in there and almost got him, got him killed. But long story short, didn't. Um, and I just, it's a lot finickier to get in. And that's one thing about this, this big open ag is, you know, if you're walking in and you bust one deer out, you might as well leave. You know, there is no yep. point of going into the tree. Um, yep. That 12 acre spot, I would go in. I'm not a morning hunter, to be honest with you. I hate hunting in the morning. Um, just because, I don't know. I'm one of those people, if I'm going to hunt in the morning, I want to be in there like way, way early. I'm not, you know, some people are wait till you can just see in gray light. I'm a, mm -hmm. my ass is going to be in that tree stand an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half before Leo shooting light. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from my hunting big timber because when you're hunting big timber, a lot of your deer are going to stay out in the fields or out on the fringes. So, you know, if you get in there that early, you're normally pretty solid, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of, how much, how, how much, how much merit are you putting on like in the big ag? How much merit are you putting on like a historical scrape? Because David knows a lot about this about me, but what I like to do, and, and I've been hunting big eggs since 2016. So how many ever years that is uh, a little bit longer than what you've been doing, but it took me about four years, three, four years to figure out a window. I have a window that is, I have like two windows actually. Um, one window is from October 12th or 13th to about 18, 19 of October that in one historical spot that you just need to be there. You need to be there and it's, and it's mid morning, you know, it, it's like a 10, 11 noon time frame is when it's going to happen. Um, the other, the other window is the 25th through the 31st of October and, uh, you need to be in this particular spot. So I'm hunting windows. I'm not hunting every day. I'm hunting windows. And then when I see a deer do something, then I strike as well. If it's out of one of those windows, are you doing stuff like that? Or is it more of, uh, of, you know, taking stabs, you know, more periodically getting in into places. So like my 12 acre piece that I can hunt, I, there's not a lot of buck activity on it except for right away early season. I'll hunt a little bit on bean years, corn, not so much. Cause there's, you know, unless the corn's out. Um, and then there's like a three or four day window in the rut that the bucks will come through. I don't, the first year I hunted it, the year I hunted 2d, I had surprise bucks showing up there on scrapes all the time. Um, but then ever since then, you know, that was year one, four years, the last four years, I really haven't had much great buck activity there. Um, and that could be because I've added more pressure, you know, the neighbor actually probably what it is, is the neighboring property sold. And now they shoot guns and all that stuff. That's probably what it is. That makes more <laughs> sense. But, um, yep. I think it really depends. My small little piece, I don't think there's much of that, but my one that hunt butts up to like the hundred acres, you know, my, my property that I can hunt is only 20. Um, and it's just a crick line, um, with some alfalfa around it. You know, there's a lot more of that that goes on, you know, it's pretty much it's only does on camera until about October 20th. So 
I mean, if I want to go shoot a doe, I can go about October, you know, October 1st through the 20th. But once the 20th starts, um, basically I got to be in there as much as I can without pressuring it too much until about November 10th. Mm-hmm. Also, is there sections of timber that you have that, like you just said, you, you've got a pot or a, a spot that is just like all does. So it made me think like, I got a spot that's literally all does all summer, all spring, all summer until about October 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. Okay. Then the bucks show up every single year. You know how many times I've put in mock scrapes, you know, with forehead gland and everything, a big old scrape in the middle of this piece of timber in the summer to try to get a buck on camera. And I cannot get bucks on camera. In there. I, I it. cannot. It is literally where the does go to drop their fawns and about four of them live in there. And then all summer. And then once that like second week of October comes every year, a buck shows up and it's in daylight. Yep. Like, do you have spots like that? That's where I killed jump browse exactly that way. You know, it's okay. I will, you know, on this 20 acres, my first year hunting it because it's where I have found junk browse sheds. I had like eight cameras on this 20 acres and it's basically an open ag field, you know, and pretty much until October 20th, all summer, I had like a forky maybe or a spike maybe, but I put mock scrapes out too. I don't do like forehead gland. I do the, um, I use hodag scent is what I use the, yep. the all season. And I think I get mine started from the does chewing on them, blah, 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 blah. But it's literally October 15th through the 20th. It's like a light switch. Boom. I mean, there's bucks everywhere. Tons of two-year-olds, tons of three-year-olds, a few four, four and five-year-olds every year. And it's just, it's one of those properties. I, it don't matter. It does not matter. I'm not, I, I'm, not going to kill a buck there early October. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's funny how those little pockets work and, and it's just every year, like I want to see a buck in the beans around this piece. It's like, so it's so like majestic. It's like, just, just come out of there. Mm-hmm. It never happens. I'll just see does after does. And the weird part about the piece that I'm talking about is there, I know that there are bucks that summer in this piece but my piece is to the west and in the summer and early September, October, they had south and east. But for some reason, mid-October, they switch and head west. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know why it is. I mean, there's no there's when they go south <laughs> and east, they have to cross roads. When they go west, they come right into ag. Yeah. You know, I just, it's one of those things that just baffles me and I'm just going to have to hunt it that way and be baffled, I guess. Maybe someday I'll learn yeah. it, but. Yeah. And I, and I tell you, listening to you guys talk about the, you know, you guys have built this historical information on a scrape or in the woodlot where, you know, junk prowl was killed. You know, to me, when you, ha- when you're hunting big ag ground, you have to have a lot of pieces and they don't have to be a lot of big pieces to hunt, but you just have to have a lot of pieces because you have to have a catalog of spots that you know when they get hot, whether it's okay, middle of October, like you said, or it's opening week of October or the second week of November where 
that that's tough, right? Like say if we all hunted 10,000 acres of public land and we'd have monotonous acres to just go hunt. Well, in big ag ground, it's not like that. You really have to have a catalog of spots, but you have to know when each spot is really firing off. And that's tough. And that takes, sometimes, you know, you swing year one and you figure it out, but sometimes that takes years. But when you really start to get those spots dialed in over the years, when to be in there, that's when you start killing shit in ag ground. Because like we talked about earlier, you put two toes in some of this, these woodlots, you blew it out, and it could be done for the year. So, you know, like you really have to be on top of your game about when to be in there and how to really get in there. You know, it's like I, I heard you talk about that, that new spot that you got where it's, it's only two acres. To me, it's like, well, it's not only just two acres because now, hey, guess what? Lee's got another spot in his back pocket. It sounds like there's a crick running off of it. Could possibly hunt bigger. Now all Lee has to do is figure out when that two acres gets hot and strike when it gets hot. And other than that, he's mm-hmm. got to leave it alone. You know, that's, that's tough to do. It sounds really easy. But that's tough to do. Sometimes that shit takes years to figure out. Trust me. It's very tough when all your buddies hunt or are volume guys. They're like, why aren't you hunting? Why are you out glassing? It's like, well, it's because it hasn't turned on yet. Yeah. I'm not just yep. going to go sit in a tree and hope that it's going to happen. I mean, it, and it could happen, you yep. know? Yep. Anybody and- can say, oh, tonight's the night. It could happen. You, you can't kill from the couch. Anybody can say that. But agreed 100% with you, David. It is more of a, a chess match rather than checkers. Like it is a strike while the iron's hot, figure out when it is hot, and you only get about three to four days per time and get in there and get it done. Yeah. And you want to know also why I think sometimes they figure out those three or four day windows, whether it's a scrape, whether it's acorns dropping, whatever it may be. This is why I think it sometimes can take so long to figure it out. You have to go through every crop rotation to build all that historical data there. Then you have to go through any kind of like, do we have soft mass in there? Do we have a wild apple tree? Do we have white oaks, red oaks, bur oaks? Like you've got to go through all those rotations because just because like, you know, like Lee said, that first year in that one woodlot, it was super hot. Was it, was it, you know, did it change because of pressure? Very good chance. But then all of a sudden you think, okay, well the first year, Let's say it's surrounded by corn, so maybe it hunted actually bigger than what it was. But then second year's got beans, so then the deer did like that takes that shit takes year of like cataloging that information. But boy, if you're keeping track of that stuff, and if you if you work at that craft for years, that shit will pay off down the road. It truly can. And I think there are three letters that you have to have when it comes to hunting big ag. You want to guess what they are? Oh, uh, is it an acronym? Yep. Um, you gonna guess AB? I want to try to guess, but I'm. Uh, I know three I'm kinda, letters. Three letters. Um, give me a hint. Do you have a hint? Starts with a C. Nope, not where I was going with it. David. <laughs> Man, uh, damn! I, I really want to try to guess, but it's uh, I know. Um, is it cop? Nope. <laughs> I I close. You got two of the letters. <laughs> I I don't know. Shoot us for the I I do. Yeah, I give, give up, up, buddy. CRP. Oh. oh. 
Damn. I, okay, so 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 I agree with you, but I don't agree with you in Michigan on it because okay. Well, in, in Iowa, where I'm I, at, you gotta have grass. You gotta have CRB. <laughs> no, dude, dude, Kansas, Iowa, Illinois doesn't matter where I've hunted, other than Michigan, I 100% agree with you. But CRP here means no cover because our CRP does not get as high as your like. True. CRP out there, dude, is like could be over your head. Yep. CRP here is knee high at best. And some of my favorite hunting is in Kansas. When you can get that decent CRP that's like, you know, might be hip height, but it's got like cedars like all inside of it. Yep. You know what I mean? I love that. No, I agree with you, Lee, but it, it, it can be very situational yep. on that and very um uh not situational, I should say very um uh, gosh, location-based. geography, yeah, geographical. location-based. There you, there you go. go. Yep. Geographical. Yeah. So, but, but I, I agree. And I don't think I'll that's give you really a per- big, big fields either. Mm-hmm. I, I I'll think g- anything that's 15 acres or more. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> I agree. I'll get, I'll give you a perfect example of that. So I cannot think of a CRP field around here anywhere. And I can't even, I can't even tell you if I've seen one in, 10 years around here, but also really, yeah. Like I, I mean, I can't like, if it can be planted, they're, they're planting like it's corner beans, alfalfa, yeah, sugar beets. We get a lot of sugar beets around here, but I tell you what, Lee, uh, went to Iowa in 2020 and I look back at my trip and I wasted what I feel like the first two or three days because when I got there, I seen all kinds of the fields you're talking about. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blink an eye at it. But come day three, I'd seen enough shit come pile out of those in the morning where I'm like, oh, put me on the side of that stuff for now on. Like, but I overlooked it because I wasn't used to it. Because in my mind, I was like, well, it's not food. It's not enough cover. It's, you know, like something in Michigan, they're not going to come out of that. But it didn't. It only took me about 48 to 72 hours. And I've seen enough shit come off those CRP fields in the morning where I was like, dude, that's where the deer are at. That's where the big bucks are mm-hmm. coming out and coming off of those CRP fields in the mornings, man. That's, it was unreal. And that's that two acre timber patch that the whole, the whole farm is 120 acres, but the very Southwest corner is the two acres that shared with the neighbor and right across the Creek runs right there, comes out of it to the North and goes to the South, right across it to the West side. There's a 35 acre CRP field. So actually where I'm hunting, you know, it's only two acres of timber, but I think the 35 acres of CRP is, you know, when you add that in, yeah, it's almost a 40 acre cover patch, but as far as trees, it's two, you know? Yeah. You, you, it's safe to say that you would believe that CRP makes some of your uh, farms hunt bigger than actually what the acreage are for huntable trees is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, yep. you know, it's one of those, uh, you know, and a lot of people that grow up in a, in the big ag know that, but it's one of those things that, like you said, you overlooked it when you came down here to Iowa. I overlooked mm-hmm. it when I first moved over here, but I've, you know, I've started to learn that that's, it's a key. Yeah. Yep. No doubt. I, I got one more hot take, Lee, one more question for you. We'll wrap this up. Do you see a trend in big ag like I do where I see, I see more older bucks using their sight over their nose because of open ground. I, I see now they're going to use their nose whenever they can, but 
but I will see older age class deer walk across a 400 acre field or uh, maybe I shouldn't say 400 acre field, but like a big ag field that's wide open with the wind to their back and they'll walk the whole way with the sight, what they have sight. They, they don't, they don't always put the wind at their face when they're walking into it. I would agree with that. And I see that more times than not them, them using their, their eyesight over their nose. I would agree with that. And it's funny you say that because the night I killed junk brow though, he came into the field with the wind at his back, which a lot of times, you know, as far as what most people say, that's a big no, no, but where he was mm-hmm. betting, he could see he was up on a high ridge and he could see where I was, where I was at. He could see the destination field that he was coming to, to hit before he, or the, the destination, you know, the alfalfa before he went out to the destination, he could see it from his bed. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think you're right. You know, I think they rely on sight a lot in this big ag cause they can see a lot of ways, a long ways, you know, yep. you know, I'm not saying yep. they completely give up their nose, but, I, you know, the night I killed him, I was just going more or less because there was a big snowstorm coming and I thought it, you know, they'll probably be on their feet. The wind was wrong. I mean, it was good for me, but as far as what should be good buck movement, mature buck movement, he shouldn't have been up in daylight, you know? Right. You know, according to what everybody says, you know, wind at their back, they're going to wait and get up after dark or they're going to go somewhere else. But he walked into the field with the wind quartering right at his ass. Yeah. And I think they do use their nose a lot when they do get in an area where it might be tighter in a timber uh, off of an ag. But I will say I've seen more upper age class deer use the wind at their ass, you know, coming where they're walking with the wind and they will even enter a piece of timber like that. They will enter the timber with the the wind at their ass, you know, and it's like it's almost like head scratching. Like, what are you doing? Like, that is not from what the guy that wrote this deer hunting book way back when the rules of deer hunting says that they do, you know, and it's like, trust me when junk bro walked out with the wind in his ass, I about shit. (laughs) 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 I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, that's wild. You know, when you talk about a a mature buck in that country, slipping back into a wood lot in the morning, for me, a lot of that, you know, like sometimes they don't necessarily need that wind because like, in my opinion, they believe that they've been right outside kind of that woodlot feeding all night that they almost suspect like any human or any, you know, predator pressure, coyotes, anything like that. If they've come in there, they should have seen them come through those open fields like that. Like they're, they're right mm-hmm. out there. You know what I mean? S- same as like how say junk bro gets up, like s- such a small woodlot late in the year, wherever he's laying in there in his mind, like if anything comes in there, he should visually be able to see it before and before the hunter can even see him. So he could scoot right out that back door. Couldn't agree more, man. 100%. Lee, thank you very much, dude, for doing this tonight. Greatly appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Is there anything that you want to add that we may have not uh, covered? I don't think so. As far as, you know, I mean, the main point of the podcast was kind of to talk about the big country and, you know, why I think they get bigger and... My experiences i think we i think we hit her hit her on the head I'm yeah to it, I, I do guess. too man maybe caught maybe I caught one too. finger <laughs> <laughs> no i i do too man and and uh we'll do this again for sure because i think you bring a lot to the table and even though you are a cult leader i think you bring a lot to the table and uh 
and uh, is a you're a very good deer hunter. So uh, we need to hear your voice more on here, probably. I have to clear that with Kurt first. <laughs> I'll call. I'll call you. I'll call Kurt tomorrow. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Oh uh, man, well Lee, thank you very much for doing this, man. You have a good rest of your evening, and uh, yeah, good luck this fall. I know I'll talk to you before then, but uh, I gotta say it because I don't have another sign off. So good luck this fall, Lee. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm gonna. I'm going to hit the hay and go to bed. So Sounds good, buddy. All right. Catch you later. <laughs>